Well, hello, my dears. By the time you see this, you will have survived election week. Congratulations. As of recording this, I have not survived election week. Um, it is actually election day. I um, have no idea what's going to be happening by the time this video goes up. For all I know, civilization could be completely in shambles. I think in the future when people look back on this period of history, one of the things that will be talked about is how polarized we are right now. For the past 60 years, Americans have become more and more and more polarized to a point now that some political scientists say we haven't seen since the Civil War. I don't know about you guys, but that is not my vibe. So this is something that's kind of a you know pet issue to me. It's something that I am interested in understanding. Today, I wanna talk about why exactly we're so polarized. How did this happen? And I also wanna talk about what I think is an interesting solution that's gaining some traction. You know, I recently learned that the Founding Fathers were terrified at the prospect of America having a two-party system. They warned against this very possibility over and over and over again, and yet, America. Lee Drutman, who is a political scientist, argues that part of the problem is we're stuck in a toxic cycle, a cycle that he calls the doom loop. As the two parties take increasingly divergent views on American national identity and view each other as further and further apart, the stakes of elections get higher and the other party feels like more of a threat. The rhetoric escalates, people become more emotional about politics and attack the other side even more. Then voters feel like the threat is even greater. They demand more aggressive partisan fighting, they accept less and less compromise, and the parties pull further and further apart. The byproduct here is an increasingly unstable state for democracy. Voters are willing to tolerate democratic erosion. Nobody cares about norms when the stakes of the other side winning are so high. And so what you see in the U.S. and in many other democracies is that at some point one party in power is willing to uh, take away certain procedural fairness issues of fair and free elections in order to ensure that the other side can't compete. And that is the breakdown of democracy. This can also mean a breakdown of the peace. There's recent data to suggest that Americans are getting more comfortable with using violence to achieve their political goals. And this makes sense when you think about it, right? Because when you dehumanize other people, it gets easier to justify committing violence against them. It wasn't always this bad. From the 1950s to the 1990s, there were effectively four political parties in America, not just two. Both the Democrats and the Republicans had their own liberal and conservative wings. There were conservative Democrats and liberal Republicans. So how did it collapse into only two? Lee attributes our current situation to three major shifts. The first is the nationalization of American politics. During the civil rights movement, people started paying less and less attention to their local and state politics and instead started looking to national politics as the arbiter of American values. Notice how both candidates this year argue that they're fighting for the soul of the nation. So money starts pouring into national elections. The presidency becomes a much bigger deal. 
This raised the stakes, and it made it harder for local and state leaders to express ideas that stray from party lines. The second shift is the growing divide between cities and small towns. As the political parties start taking more direct stances on social issues, they also become more divided geographically. Social liberals, you know, we tend to live in big cities. Social conservatives, they tend to live in rural areas. Because cities are more racially diverse, this also means that the parties start fracturing more along racial lines. All of this creates what political scientists Liliana Mason calls a mega-identity. Suddenly, our political parties start standing for much more than they used to. It's who we are and where we come from. Fast forward to today, and 60 to 70% of Americans say that they see people from another party as an existential threat. The third shift we'll talk about is neck-in-neck -neck elections. Since the 90s, the pendulum has swung you know, pretty predictably back and forth between Democrats and Republicans. This means that the allure of total power stays just out of reach. In theory, this should be you know, a moderating force between the parties. But in reality, it invites vitriolic, snaky sort of tactics in order to get short-term political gains, especially as more and more Americans and our leaders disregard the social norms of civility and respect. The obvious truth here, of course, is that there are 300 million Americans. We don't all fall neatly into two binary ways of thinking. Mmm, starting to feel like another argument I've made before. There is a ton of viewpoint diversity across the country, but because of the two-party system, we don't often get to hear those ideas, let alone vote on them. This has led to a lot of people describing themselves as politically homeless, and I can certainly relate to some of those feelings. Think about Bernie Sanders or Andrew Yang's voters, or this guy. Our children can't afford to live anywhere. Once again, why? You said it, the rent is too damn high. Where do these ideas go? To make matters worse, with no incentive to work together, we see more gridlock in Congress. That leaves more problems to the judicial branch, which raises the stakes of the Supreme Court. And it's especially weird to me that, you know, people who say, hey, maybe we should try to work together, maybe we should compromise, you know, earn themselves a two-week Twitter pile-on. But wanting people with different values to work together is what healthy politics looks like. It doesn't mean we have to agree with each other. It doesn't even mean you have to see both sides. It just means that we acknowledge that, you know, in a country this large, None of us can have exactly what we want. So we start with a conversation and we try to figure out how to make it work for as many people as possible. Cute, right? <laughs> yeah, that's probably not gonna happen. We're fucked. But wait, do you hear that? There's a stirring in the country, a whisper in the wind. Maybe we need a multi-party system. Maybe we need to repair the electoral college. Maybe insert idea here. One thing is clear. A lot of people are fed up with the system, see problems with it, and don't feel like they're being fairly represented in politics. So there's one idea that at least to me seems like a no-brainer. It's called ranked choice voting. Here's a little primer if you haven't heard of it before. Ranked choice voting is another voting method which allows voters to rank their candidates in order of preference. In a ranked choice voting election, a candidate needs to earn more than half of the votes to win. All first choices are counted, and if a candidate has a majority, then they win, just like any other election. If not, the candidate with the fewest votes is eliminated, and voters who picked that candidate as number one will have their votes count for their next choice. This process continues until a candidate earns a majority and is declared the winner. 
Now, there are a lot of sneaky little benefits to ranked choice voting. It promotes actual majority support for our elected leaders. It might solve the problem of strategic voting by allowing people to safely vote for a third party if that's their first choice. My friend Adam, who studies participatory politics, hard to say, he thinks this could also incentivize our leaders to sort of cool down the rhetoric and work for more people. I think one of the benefits of this style of voting is that it, it forces candidates to not only advocate to their main supporters, but also it forces them to say to some other supporters, hey, I might be your second choice and I'd love to be that for you. Or maybe I'm not your first or second, but I'd love to be your third. And that way, maybe we would start seeing um, a larger group of people who are kind of accepting that they aren't falling into one category or another, but they're, you know, we're much more nuanced. Well. If there's one thing I love, it's the nuance. Let me know what you guys think down below. Sending you guys lots of love and hugs. If this was a hard week for you, I'll see you next time.